Hello and welcome to the Region Agri podcast, the go-to place to hear everything about regenerative agriculture. Region Agri is an initiative supporting farms, agribusinesses and the supply chain in their transition to regenerative approaches. We offer global capability with the aim of securing the health of the land and the wealth of those who live on it. For more information about our initiative and to find out how we can help you with your regenerative journey, visit regionagri.org. I'm your host, Rose Riley, and once again, I'm excited to bring you the latest developments on the global phenomenon that is regenerative agriculture. In this episode, we're going to be finding out about regenerative wine production. I'm joined by holistic management educator and viticulturalist Kelly Mulville, the vineyard director at Piscinez Ranch in California. Since joining the team at Piscinez Ranch in 2014, Kelly has designed the vineyard from scratch. He is implementing his vision of a vineyard which requires very few inputs or human labour, produces good yields of high quality grapes, produces animal protein, improves soil health, sequesters carbon, creates diversity and makes a good financial return. Today, we'll delve into what he's trying to achieve, how regenerative practices are being implemented on the vineyard, and what we can learn from Kelly's experience in regenerative wine production. Welcome to the podcast, Kelly. I'm excited to hear more about what you're doing at Piscina's Ranch. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Real pleasure to have you here. If we could start by you giving us a bit of a background to yourself and your background in viticulture, but also how you started on your regenerative journey and advising on holistic management. My interest in agriculture started when I was fairly young. We had a small market farm on the property that I grew up on, a family market farm. And uh, early on, I developed a, partly through becoming involved in falconry and raising raptors, I became very interested in the natural world, then realized that a lot of the reason that we're having declines in things like raptors was because of agricultural chemicals. On learning that, I asked my father if I could take over the market farm and transition that to organic early on in kind of the realm of organics. And so that was basically just growing vegetable crops. We had some livestock and I spent a lot of time trying to get the goats out of the market farm. So as you will shortly learn, now I'm spending all my time trying to get livestock back into agricultural situations. Yeah, I went on to eventually study with Alan Savory, who was a ecologist from Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. And he had come to America and was primarily working with ranchers doing what was called holistic management. I got involved with him and spent a fair bit of time studying under him and working with ranchers in particular that were practicing holistic management. And the idea of that was how do you manage livestock to mimic nature, to mimic natural herds in the wild in order to restore health and vitality to grazing lands. And there was a kind of a very interesting framework around that process, which was basically a decision-making framework. And so through my introduction into all of that, I started looking at and thinking about ways that that might work in agricultural situations, as in crop farming, orchards, and vineyards. I ended up getting interested in wine later on in that process And through that, became fascinated with viticulture and put in a vineyard for some other people. Southeast Arizona was the first vineyard I put in. And starting with that process, I immediately was thinking of ways that I could integrate livestock into vineyard and ended up talking to a couple of people who were working in that in California. Eventually, I ended up in California and was managing vineyards. In all of those vineyards, I actually had my own flock of sheep. That ultimately led me to realize that there's probably better ways to graze vineyards. 
And so before we go into the details of the vineyard, can you tell us a little bit about where you're based now? So you're at Piscina's Ranch and there's lots of other bits and pieces going on there. So it'd be interesting just to get an overview of what's happening at the ranch and how the vineyard fits in there. Piscina's Ranch is in San Benito County in the central coast of California. We are a couple hours south of San Francisco and Endland a bit, and we are directly east of Monterey Bay. This area, well, Monterey Bay, just on the other side of the hill from us, is known as growing probably most of the lettuce and greens for the United States. It's a huge agricultural area and very coastal, so the climate is very different. Where we are, we're in the rain shadow, so when the rains come from the coast, they get caught in the hills, and we don't get that much. The historic average is 12 inches, and currently we are in the worst drought in recorded history. Actually, the worst drought since apparently in the last 1,800 years. We are dry. It's Mediterranean climate. It's a historic wine-growing area. The ranch itself is 7,600 acres. Most of that is rangeland, so that's land that we graze primarily with sheep and some cattle. We have... 600 acres of irrigated cropland. Almost anything that you grow commercially needs to have irrigation, aside from forage crops, which some of those can be grown dry farmed. Originally, it's been operating as a ranch since about the middle 1800s. It was first a Mexican land grant, and then it's been owned by various other people. They've experimented with a number and grown a number of crops here. And at one point, there were a thousand acres of wine grapes on this ranch between the years of 1965 and 1995. And that was all part of Almaden Vineyard, which was the largest vineyard in the country and one of the largest in the world during that time. There have not been wine grapes on here for a while. And currently the main things that we grow are sheep and cattle that are produced on the rangeland. We also do pastured pork. We do turkeys And we've experimented with a couple of other livestock ventures, but those are the main ones that we're working with now. All of those actually are grazing on the rangeland and the hogs are grazing on irrigated land, as are the turkeys. And then the vineyard is just 25 acres and it's a very experimental vineyard and we'll get more into that shortly. But those are all the ventures here. In addition, we have a wedding venue and we do numerous workshops Every year, we had a bit of a break in that from COVID, and we're back into that. And most of the workshops center around regenerative agriculture. And we bring in people from farmers and speakers from all over the country and all over the world. And those programs are mainly geared towards other farmers, but also students and other people learning. Brilliant. We certainly find doing this podcast that there's a lot of enthusiasm for sharing amongst the regenerative community, which is really nice in terms of knowledge share. So it sounds like those workshops fit right in there. So it's a very diverse operation that you've got going on there. How does the team manage the operations with such a diversity of crop and livestock on the ranch? We divide up into our different roles. So I'm director of the vineyard, but it's interesting because there is crossover. For instance, we are grazing the vineyard throughout the year. We're able to graze at any time of the year now. So I need to work closely with the livestock crew about when I want the sheep in there. And we run several thousand head of sheep here, so we have a fairly large flock. And at times, we will put the entire flock in the vineyard, and they will be there for, say, a very short time, maybe just 24 hours. And other times, we'll take out, say, 200 replacement ewes or something like that. 
And then we will strip graze those through the vineyard over a period of a week to two weeks, depending on how much forage we have. So I'm working fairly closely with the livestock team. And then people on the livestock team kind of branch out. And some of them are focused on the poultry and the swine. The others are more focused on the cattle and the sheep. And then for the weddings, the events that are held here, we have a separate hospitality crew. We have our own chef here. Then we have maintenance people. It's almost like a little village here with everybody doing their various tasks. And then we have obviously admin people. And so we're probably around 25 employees, give or take a few. Fantastic. Yeah, really extensive, really extensive. So you've spoken a little bit about the vineyard, but I'm really interested to hear the detail of how you set it up, where it started, how you've implemented regenerative agriculture into it, and how, in a bit more detail, you're managing the mix of grapes and livestock. Okay, so the vineyard was established in 2017 is when we first put that in, but I'm going to back up a little bit here. And about 12 years ago, I was managing a small vineyard in Sonoma County in the United States. And that was being managed biodynamically. And I realized that I, I was grazing that during the wintertime. And I realized that if I could figure out a way to graze that throughout the growing season, that I thought there would be some benefits from that. And the owner of that vineyard gave me permission to do that. And I simply put in an electric hot wire, an electrified wire on either side of the fruiting zone with an offset system. And that allowed me basically to run livestock in their sheep in this case. I ran them in there until about the end of June, at which point we ran out of forage. And from that trial, I discovered that by introducing sheep into a vineyard, we got a lot of benefits, some of which we were expecting, some that we weren't. And I'm just going to quickly say what those were and how that led to where we are now. The main one was that we had significant cost savings because we were able to reduce or eliminate tractor use. And we didn't do any cultivating. It was organic slash biodynamics. We used no herbicides and we had no fertility inputs. Labor was reduced because we didn't have to do any suckering. We didn't have to do any mowing, disking, any of those things that you're normally managing your vineyard floor with. And then in addition... So the sheep did the suckering for us, which is basically browsing off the leaves that form on the trunk. And if you let those go, they can sap a lot of energy from the fruit. Then in addition, they do the shoot tipping. So when the vines get tall, they drape over into the row. And generally those are cut either by hand or most commonly now by machine. None of those tasks had to be done. And consequently, we had a reduction in the labor, a reduction in inputs, And then at that time, the estimated cost savings was over $500 per acre. We now have calculated that to be over $1,000 per acre cost savings per year. Fantastic. And just to give you an idea, the vineyards, the second biggest wine growing region in California is just on the other side of the hill from us. And there, there's, I don't know how many, probably the majority of vineyards there are at least a thousand acres. Yep. So right off the bat, there's potential of a million dollars in cost savings and going to something like this for some of those folks. So after I did that trial, and then the one last thing I, I didn't mention is we had significant savings in water use. We had a 90% reduction in water use compared to the control site. And we had about a 1,350 pound per acre increase in yield. So we had oh, wow. a reduction in water and an increase in yield. And the Incredible. quality, according to the winemaker, the quality was, was excellent. 
in addition to being a winemaker, he also taught winemaking at, at the college in Napa. So he was a, he had been around for a while. So after doing that, I ended up writing an article on that, submitted it to all the viticulture magazines in this country, and it was rejected by every one of them. But it was published immediately in Australia, New Zealand, grape grower, winemaker. And so that publication covers most of the Southern Hemisphere for people involved in agriculture or viticulture. Because of that, I ended up being invited by both countries to do presentations to vineyard groups there. And it wasn't until after doing that that I even that I got invited to do a presentation in this country. So sometimes you you're you're a, a kook in your own country, but when somebody else recognizes you, then it's, it's okay to come back. <laughs> yeah. So that that was that was my my case. When I did come back, when I returned from doing those presentations, I was invited to do a presentation at a conference called the Eco Farm, which is the big organic regenerative agriculture conference on the West Coast of California. At that conference was the owner of this vineyard, Sally Calhoun. And we had met previously and she told me she was interested in putting in a vineyard. I suggested she come to that conference and hear what I was working on because she might not be interested in it. And that way she would have a better idea of what I'm doing. And if she was interested, then we could go from there. Long story short, she was extremely interested and hired me away from a farm that my wife and I were leasing and considering buying in Colorado and got me back into viticulture. (laughs) And my proposal to her was that the first vineyard to set up commercially using that offset system that I described is Inside Vineyard in Victoria, Australia. And they've been doing that for nine or 10 years now, very successfully. And my thinking, though, was how do we push this even further? Because we're just modifying an existing vineyard that was designed to be managed by tractors and people. And oftentimes with high chemical use and high inputs. And my thinking was, if we mimic nature more closely, we we should probably be able to get all the benefits I realized in my trial work, but also we could manage and design for other benefits. And so that's what we've done here at the Vineyard at Picinus Ranch. We've started by looking at ecological principles, by paying attention to what tasks the animals can do, and then also being realistic about climate change. And it is really hitting us hard now in California. That was one of the reasons why the editor of Australia, New Zealand, Great World Winemaker said she accepted my article is because she said climate change seems to be very intense in Australia compared to other regions. And so we are really paying attention to options and opportunities to adapt to that. And that was one of the reasons why she accepted that article. And so... The idea for kind of redesigning how we grow grapes was to look at how we create more resiliency in the face of climate change. For instance, right now, we're both getting hotter in the summer, but we're also getting frost much later in the spring than we have previously. Right. Almost, well, actually over a month later than they would normally occur, which can be really devastating. Huge percentage of the crop was lost in California this year due to crop to late frost. And that, you know, we also see this happening in Europe too and all over. So the changing climate doesn't just involve heat at all. Also, it involves extremes at both ends. Yeah. Um, so we were thinking through on how we would do this. And my thought was, how do we basically raise the, the trellis up so that we're out of reach of the sheep and that we have access in all directions in the vineyard and that we are able to graze that without having to set up the offset wire system and that we are also cooler by raising the wines up higher. So that's exactly what we did. I looked at a number of different options and the option that I ended up going with was introduced to me by my friend and 
a viticulturalist consultant in this country named Fritz Westover, and he introduced me to the Watson trellis system, which was developed in Texas. And when I first saw that, I asked him if he knew if anybody was grazing under it. And he said, no, it actually wasn't even designed for that. It was designed for high humidity. So I realized that it would probably work well for my purposes. And we installed that here. We were the first people to install it in California. And the reality is it's not that different from some of the table grape and raisin grape trellises that are in use. So it's not, it's not way out there. Mm-hmm. It is a different way of farming. The spacing of the vines is further apart than the traditional practices here. I say traditional, we haven't been doing great that long in California. So it's more the contemporary practices. Yeah, And so um, that allows us to graze it any time of year. But it also it's also already proven to be more frost resilient when the vines are up higher. And then it also is cooler up in that canopy. And because it comes up, it spreads in both directions. So it's going along the cordon wire, but then it's also going up and over the V trellis. And so it's kind of like a little shaded canopy. Basically, our rows are about, they are 12 feet apart and the vines are six feet apart. But when the vines are fully developed, they take up about six feet of that overhead space. And when the sun is directly overhead and it's hottest, they're covering, providing shade in that. That is that is one of the things that's happening there. We also like a, a lot of people in regenerative agriculture, we keep the ground covered throughout the yep. year. And that's either with a living plant, a living growing plant, or a vegetation mulch from plants that have died or gone dormant. So we are, we're doing that. And we don't till. We've never tilled in there except for the initial establishment. And we are also encouraging a diversity of plants in there. So we have a fairly high diversity of plants growing in there. And we've got the all of these aspects, raising it up in the air, keeping the ground covered and having the shade and lining the rows up so the prevailing wind goes up the rows and doesn't flip the vines over if we're trying to go against the wine. And that keeps the canopy drier and reduces mildew pressure, which is enabling us to reduce the amount of sprays that we have to use for basically fungicides. And we are certified organic, so we don't use anything that would not be allowable. And we are also in the process of trying to phase out even the organic fungicides because they are hard on beneficial insects. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I'm interested in the cover crops that you're using. Are there any specific types that you found that are particularly good? We have found that there are, we've grown cover crop seed commercially in the past, things like triticale and oats and vetch. We have found that a forage oat works particularly well for us as a cover crop, and as well as things like chicory. We like to throw a lot of flowers in our cover crop mix. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, we are phasing out the commercial seed and introducing more native plant seed because that helps encourage and provide habitat and food for the native pollinators. And that increasing the insect population helps us increase our bird population, especially the insect eaters. We're not so interested in increasing the fruit eaters. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little hard to have them stop at the gate and (laughs) and divide out. Yeah, they don't have passports. (laughs) No. I mean, that leads really nicely into the next point is in terms of biodiversity, what changes have you seen on the land since you started this in 2017? So because this is partly an experimental vineyard and we have a a nonprofit here that is a learning organization, 
And so it's very important that we keep records of what's going on. So we do a lot of monitoring. We're monitoring the vegetation. We're monitoring the insect population. We're monitoring bird species. We're monitoring the soil in numerous ways, including the, the microbiology of the soil. And so it's a pretty vigorous uh, monitoring program that we have here. And some of it, for the insects, we actually ended up hiring somebody because we had no idea where to start with that. We are comparing that with some of our neighboring vineyards because we think we're on the right track, but we're going to verify that. For one thing, in the soil, we're seeing a big increase in soil, organic matter, soil carbon, and we've increased that. We actually increased it by 1% before we even got a crop. And that was that was based on basically the development practices that we used. In addition, we're monitoring the soil microbiome and we're working with a company called Biome Markers. And that is allowing us to see what populations are there, what species and what their function is in the vineyard. And so that's been a pretty fascinating monitoring program. And that is exciting because, again, we're, we're comparing that with some of the neighboring vineyards. And we do have higher species diversity, but where they have higher populations are in those microbes that do well in tilled areas or bare ground. And so since we don't have that, we don't actually have very many of those. But we have more of the microbiome that does well in a more diverse habitat. Yeah. In addition, we are monitoring. So the insects is being done by somebody else. And same thing, he's finding that we have a lot more of the pollinators and predators and a lot less of the pest insects. And then for the birds, we have a neighbor who is a retired bird guide. She's guided trips all over the world. And she's been out several times and she put us on and made us, made the vineyard site an eBird hotspot. eBird is a site developed by Cornell University. It's a website and birders all over the world use that web. It's probably the most common birding website in use now. And so when you're listed as an eBird hotspot, then people seek you out because of that. And so we have people that will actually come here and stay. We have lodging and rooms here. People will come here in part to go up to the vineyard and bird. We have a couple other hot spots on the ranch as well. And what we are seeing is that we have a good diversity of birds. Most of the birders that come here are very surprised at how many birds we have in the vineyard and are used to not seeing many. But mm. the big surprise for us is that we had we have a, a bird called the tricolored blackbird, which is endemic to California and is an endangered species. And it's mainly declining because of agricultural practices. Yeah. And we've seen a few here and there, but never that many. And this year we ended up with over 800 nesting just below the vineyard and coming into the vineyard every day to forage for insects. That was actually phenomenal for us and my, my crew of interns to see that because a big part of our goal is increasing biodiversity. Yeah. And in order to have that many birds, as some of the wildlife people told us, you have to have a big diversity of insects. We were seeing that and it was just a great indicator that we were on track. And because of that, there's been a lot of interest. We had birding people who just study this particular bird come out and spend time here trying to figure out what we were doing to attract yeah. the bird that is declining everywhere else. They must have been quite surprised to find themselves on an agricultural setting. That's really impressive. Amazing. That's, yeah, that's, that's a lot of fun. So with regards to the data that you're getting with all of this monitoring of the various <laughs> different elements of natural capital that you're creating on the ranch, are you using that data to then kind of guide your planning and your decision making? How's that all working? 
We are. And one of the things that I didn't mention, and this is more in line with kind of the agronomy practices, we are using sap analysis, rather more tissue analysis is more commonly used in viticulture. It's been used for years. And we just started a couple of years ago using sap analysis. We're basically pulling leaves off of the vine and we're testing both old leaves and new leaves because nutrients are translocated around in the grapevine. And where they are will tell you, even though you might have a deficiency in one age class, it'll tell you if you actually need to spray something or do a fertilizer application. Because if you have, for instance, if you have a deficiency in an old leaf and plenty in a new leaf, it may indicate the new leaf is robbing from the old leaf. So it's a kind of, you're looking at this balancing act that the plant is doing and gauging off of that, whether you need to spray. So it's a little bit more accurate. And we found what we are trying to do is basically increase plant health so that we are increasing photosynthetic capacity. And, you know, one of the basic tenants of regenerative agriculture is how do we increase the sequestering of carbon? And one of the main ways we do that is through a plant, through photosynthesis. And if a plant is photosynthesizing very well, if it doesn't have any limiting factors, then it's going to be putting carbon down into those roots, feeding the microbiology. And when they die, that's going to be a huge component of that stable form of carbon. So by using the SAP analysis, we find that we generally will have maybe a deficiency or occasionally an excess of something. Our water and our soils are high in boron. And so that's the primary excess that we come across. But in order to address that, we can generally just increase our calcium. So it's giving us a nice picture of what's needed in the plant. And in general, our sprays, the amount we're using, it can be measured in grams or ounces rather than pounds or tons. It's all foliar applied. And that is actually also the only time we have a tractor in the vineyard is when we're doing these foliar sprays because we're not doing any mowing. We're not doing any herbicides, any tillage, any undervine cultivation, any shoot tipping or sucker removal with a tractor. So it's just those sprays. And our hope is that as we build our soil biology, we'll actually be able to phase out of those sprays as well. And I'm interested to know what life is like for a sheep in a vineyard. How are they faring with that environment in comparison to a more traditional kind of open grassland grazing environment? Well, for all the sheep listening, I think they're really going to appreciate that question and be pretty excited, <laughs> be pretty excited about what we're doing here. I always, I've actually managed just a sheep ranch. We didn't even have a vineyard on that and have gotten very attached to the personalities of sheep. I always felt a bit bad about when I was grazing more conventional vineyards where the trellises are, the vines are trained very low to the ground and the drip wire, the irrigation wire and tubing are, are pretty low. And it's difficult for a sheep to go under that. And often when they do, they tear things up. So consequently, when they go in a row, which sometimes can be pretty long, 200 meters or so. Oh, actually more like maybe 100 meters, but they're basically stuck in that row. It's very difficult to go to the other row. And sheep are very social animals. They like to be together. But being in a vineyard with good forage, I think is a good experience for a sheep. But being in the vineyard that we have developed is even better. And this goes for humans too, because we've trained everything high. Our cordon wire is at about 68 inches. And then we have a drip wire just below that and drip tubing. So basically, you can, if you're short, you can walk right under it without ducking. If you're taller, you just have to duck a little bit and you can go right under the wires. 
And that allows, even though the rows are linear, I mean, it still looks like a regular vineyard in a lot of ways, the rows mm-hmm. are linear, but it allows access in any direction from that. Normally when I would graze a more conventional vineyard, if you're dividing it up, you just run your electric wire down the row because you can't go between rows. But in the vineyard we have set up, you can go in any direction. And that allows us to maybe block off a particular vine that's, you know, we have to go three rows over to do that. But sometimes our paddocks are kind of, they don't have a a rectangular square pattern. They can go in any direction. Mm -hmm. And that allows us a lot more flexibility in how we manage that. The sheep are happier in that too, because they're not restricted. So they can all stay in a pretty tight bunch and not have to worry about, you know, that their mom ended up on the other side of the vineyard trellis or something. So in that regard, and then for the people too, when we pick, we are picking at eye level. We don't have to stoop down to pick. And also when you're working, if you're a sheep in there, because the trellis is partially overhead during the hottest part of the day, you're in the shade. So all of those factors make that really nice to be both a human and a sheep in that vineyard. Fantastic. So I'm keen to know then about what you're actually producing. So the wine, but also any other products. I don't know if the sheep are actually producing any meat for you that's saleable, but it'd be really interesting to find out, you know, what the vineyard is producing, who you're selling it to and what sort of quality you're getting. We just did our second crop. And before I forget, because I always forget this one, and that's pretty important. We grow hair sheep, so they are meat sheep. We have two different breeds. We're using Katahdin and Dorper sheep. They produce really high quality meat. And we sell beef, we sell pork, we sell lamb, and we sell turkeys. And all of that, we have a store here at the ranch. That's the main way that we sell. In essence, we have two crops that we get off the vineyard, both the lamb or the sheep and mm-hmm. then the wine grapes. Because, again, this ties into the whole design aspect of this, because we knew that things were going to get hotter and more unpredictable, we are only planting varieties that do well in hot climates. We're using all vinifera, which is the traditional wine grape variety, and we are using rootstock that is most suited to dry conditions and low water, dry hot conditions. So the varieties that we're growing We have two phases. We divide it up into the first planting and the second planting, figuring that since this was an experiment, we'd learn from the first planting for the second planting, which was definitely true. In the first section, we have Grenache, Verdejo, which is from Spain, Assertico, which is from Greece, Picpou Blanc, which is from southern France, Menthea, which is from Spain. And then we have a small section that has a number of varieties, which includes Cunois, also from southern France, Cabernet Sauvignon, which is one of the more common grapes grown in our neighborhood here, and Carignan. In the second planting, we increased the Assertico, which has done very well for the winemakers, Cinso, and Cunois. And then in addition, we planted Fiona, Barbera, Neurodavola, Muscat Blanc, Grenache Gris, Grenache Blanc, Chile Agiolo, which is also Italian. I think I, I think that's it. Yep, I think that's it. That's an incredible diversity of grape varieties within the one vineyard. That's amazing. Yes, and that's, that's in 25 acres. Yeah, that's amazing. And that leads me to what happens to those grapes. Well, basically, people became interested in what we were doing in, in the vineyard itself, including a number of winemakers. And so we initially had picked, we're working with four wineries right now. Last year, we were just working with one. We picked a winemaker who 
seemed to be doing a very good job. She was totally open about how all of her grapes were grown. And she's now, all of her grape varieties are organic. She did have one vineyard that was not quite organic and she helped them to get to convert to organic completely. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to her website, if you're trying one of her wines, you can find out exactly how those grapes were grown because she's going to talk about that on her website. And so that's pretty important to us because we feel that the winemakers we work with are partners yep. because they are taking it to the general public. And we are working on this way of growing wine grapes that we are increasingly finding is more beneficial to the ecosystem, is more beneficial to the people who work in this environment, and that it has the potential to be more profitable as well. And so I think I know for myself that when I drink a wine or in the food that I eat, I'd like to know how it's grown. And if somebody does not want to tell me about that, then I'm a little suspicious. <laughs> so consequently, that's one of the criteria we use to select people. We are in a position right now where we have a waiting list of winemakers. And so we interview winemakers to make sure that they seem like they will be a good fit for us. And I don't know of any other winemaker that's in that position right now. <laughs> Fantastic. I think it's so important because with regenerative approaches, there is a really important story to tell there. And wine is a great place to be within that because connoisseurs of wine tend to be very interested in the origin story of what they're drinking. Um, so having the right winemakers as that bridge between you and the end consumer is particularly important. I agree completely. And I think it's exactly true what you said. And I often joke that going into regenerative agriculture through winemaking and wine growing was just taking advantage of low hanging fruit because people are very interested in how their, how their wine is grown yeah. and how it is made. And so then to the quality of wine, I think you'd asked about that. We've only had one. So we just did our second harvest. We've only been able to try wine from the first harvest and that was Grenache, Assertico, and Verdejo. And that was made by Margins Wine, which is a one-woman operation, a young woman um, near us. And the other thing that we're trying to support people that are passionate and we feel like they have great potential and maybe are not that well known because they work harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so... And rather than piggybacking on somebody who's very well established, which we actually did for one of our winemakers this year. But in general, our winemakers are, are folks that are getting started. They tend to be in the world of natural wine or definitely paying attention to how their grapes are grown and want to tell the story about how they are getting those grapes and what they think about that. And so it's that's really a fun banter going on there. But the first release, which was this year, of those three wine varieties the Assertico basically sold out before it was even bottled because some folks tried that from the barrel. So we couldn't even get near the amount that we wanted of that. The Verdejo sold out within about a month and the Grenache was listed as sold out after about a month or two months. But it turned out that Megan, the winemaker, actually held some back because she was opening a tasting room and she wanted to have it for that. So. <laughs> But we, we actually got enough where we could do a couple of tastings, but we were hoping to be able to use that wine for some of our events here, but we've not gotten to that point yet. So hopefully yep. in another year or two, we'll be able to do that. But so far, the quality looks very good. And we have had a couple of reviews of it. And the first one was actually from the New York Times. The wine writer for the New York Times came to the vineyard 
in part because he was pretty fascinated about our growing practices, but then he was also able to taste some of the wines produced from here yeah. and did a nice write-up. So. Fantastic. Brilliant. And you mentioned briefly about profitability. Now, obviously, you don't have a, a direct benchmark with this vineyard because you've designed it from scratch to be running in this way. But do you feel that you'll see an economic benefit having taken this approach? I think we will see a fairly large economic benefit, especially as we get further along in this. But just right off the bat, because this is a question we've asked commonly, commonly enough that I'm going to spend this winter dissecting what the difference is between our input costs and more conventional input costs. Mm-hmm. And by that, I would include organic and biodynamic in that because we, we are doing things differently than most of those folks. Yep. Just the materials, the installation costs are less because our row spacing is wider and our vine spacing is wider. So we have about a 604, 605 vines per acre and a normal VSP vineyard in California would probably have closer to at least double that, maybe more than double that. Right. And because of that, because their rows are tighter, which means they have more in posts, they have more trellis posts. So just the cost of the trellis alone is greater. And I just saw a cost comparison. We spent about $5,200 per acre on our trellis. And that same year, people were spending somewhere between eight and 9000 for their trellis to establish right. that. Then um, kind of the converse side of that is then people will say, well, yeah, but if you have lower spacing, if you're less dense, you're going to get less fruit. But because of the way our training system works, we actually are able to keep more spurs per foot of vine than you can in a traditional VSP system because we are dividing those along the V. They, one goes one direction and one goes the other. Mm-hmm. Whereas commonly, it would just be the ones, so you would have the same number as you would on one side. So we're kind of doubling up the number. We expect, based on previous records from this Watson training system, trellis system, that we will get pretty close to the average yield of a VSP vineyard that's at higher density. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, this has been an incredibly interesting discussion, and I very much look forward to hopefully being able to get my hands on some of the pick pole when it becomes available. But before we finish up, I just want to understand from you what one piece of advice you might give to somebody who shares your passion for regenerative farming and wine and, you know, might be keen to get involved. I think one of the big problems we face is that we get stuck in what we know. And oftentimes there's a reluctance to try something new. And I think, for instance, anybody in in England in particular, are in some of the cooler areas that are now able to grow wine grapes to pay attention to what the opportunities are to design and implement something that works within your environment. And keep in mind that some of the places in this country that we thought were too cold to grow wine and grapes are and probably not too long are going to be too warm. And yep. so if you, if you design with resiliency in mind, I think that's really important. And then there's one of the obvious things I mentioned to everybody who's looking at farming, regardless of how they farm, is to just practice the basic soil health principles of keeping your ground covered, um, reducing or eliminating tillage, uh, reducing or eliminating anything that's toxic to other life. 
including humans, but also if it's toxic to your insects, it's going to be toxic to all of them, most likely. Yeah. And, um, and looking at how do you increase biodiversity? How do you implement cover crops, keep your soils covered throughout the year? And having a, a vision or a context of what you're trying to create and consider all the life in that. Consider all your biodiversity, your insects, your, your plants, your birds, because agriculture is one of the most destructive practices that humans have come up with, especially industrial agriculture, which basically strips the land of all biodiversity and narrows it down to one crop. Yeah, and unfortunately so. I think, yeah, I think what we are just on the tip of the iceberg of here is how we can use agriculture by paying attention to our practices as a tool to restore biodiversity to the ecosystem and put carbon back in the ground and create healthier products that are funner to farm. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, Kelly, it's been a real joy speaking to you today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today for the Region Agri podcast. To learn more about what we've talked about in this episode, please find the link to the Piscinas Ranch website in the show notes. If you would like to know more about how the Region Agri Initiative can help you on your regenerative journey from advisory services, monitoring of on-farm data and regenerative certification through to carbon verification, please visit regenagri.org. There you can also check out our case studies and articles and gain access to our digital hub for free insight and advice. Alternatively, follow us on Twitter at regionangry underscore org or search regionangry on LinkedIn.